The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. My co-host, John Von Susten of XM Satellite Radio, isn't with us. He's busy cataloging his cast album recordings. Our guest today, F. Murray Abraham, is currently appearing in the Manhattan Theatre Club production of Teresa Rebeck's Mauritius. His countless stage credits include last year's repertory productions of The Jew of Malta and The Merchant of Venice, the original production of Terence McNally's The Ritz, Waiting for Godot at Lincoln Center Theatre, public theater productions of King Lear, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Twelfth Night, The Seagull, and The Golem, as well as the musicals The Fantastics and Triumph of Love. He received an Obie Award for his performance in Uncle Vanya and an Academy Award for his performance as Antonio Salieri in the film Amadeus. Murray, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you. It's really, it's kind of embarrassing to hear all those things. <laughs> well, we could have gone on, but we'd rather talk with you than <laughs> read you. to you. Thank you. Uh, Mauritius, your current project a comedy drama Mm. about stamp collecting, if we boil it down, but it's certainly about so much more. Tell us a little about Mauritius to get us started. I can tell you uh, what it really is about is what the theater is really about. I think uh, you mentioned some of the things I've done. I've been doing it for over 40 years, and this is absolutely the best cast I've ever worked with, ever. I can say that unequivocally. We knew it as soon as we started rehearsing. There's something in this play for each actor to do, to show off, to to have their their moment in the sun. And they're they're all excellent actors, and we all like each other. This is not real common. But what I'm suggesting is it's more like music when we play together. It's more like a quintet, a really good quintet playing some really good music. And a good conductor and in the director, Doug well, Hughes. He's one of the best, really, really. And he communicates with actors like few directors do these days. But um, the the thing I'm trying to say is what we've accomplished or are accomplishing is I think what, we, what so many of us know exists in the theater, but it's so elusive. And, and, and when it happens, we're so happy that it happens. And, and as an actor, if... if and I, I said this in an interview it was a print media it was um um print medium it was um that i'm willing to predict that any actor who sees this production is going to say i wish i was part of that uh and it's true because it's just uh a bunch of pros i don't want to carry on too much about it because there there is there's substance in the play to talk about too but uh the response from the, from the people is is as much for the material as it is for the playing and it's a it's a pleasure, but that's something you find out once you're into it. At least, as you say, that first day of rehearsal. You, certainly, you probably didn't read with all of these actors beforehand. Mm. It was it, it came together. What drew you to this play? Because while early in your career we see lots and lots of new plays, but it seems that more recently, in general, you've been doing classical work. Mm. So why this new play? Well, there aren't a lot of new plays around, really. They're all, unfortunately. For American theater, they're either imported from abroad or there aren't many chances being taken by the producers in town. They're usually waiting for someone else to prove the material first. And this is not so with the Manhattan Theater Club, uh, fortunately. They're getting a couple of breaks from the unions. That helps. But there are not that many around. But uh, I knew Teresa's work. I read as a reading her Omnium Gathering, and I, I really responded to it. I really liked it a lot. 
and I told her so. And when she wrote this, uh, she said, "I think there's, I think you're going to like this part." And uh, sure enough, so you say she think she said you were going to like this part. Mm-hmm. Were you sent this right off? Did Teresa have you in mind when she? Wrote I don't this? know that. I don't know. I know that Doug called me and said. Mm-hmm. Teresa thinks, and I agree, that you'd be, you really have a good time with this. And he was right. Well, tell us a little about the character that you play in the context of the, of the story. Well, it is, it's an interesting idea, this character, because it involves stamp collecting, uh, some really knowledgeable stamp collectors. But I represent a criminal element, and it happens that there is uh, a criminal element in stamp collecting. I didn't know that. I'm not saying that it's uh, that they are practicing criminal activities, but they do collect some of them. Some of them do, and if you think about it, it's easy to transport. It's easy to conceal. It's easy to protect. Uh, a stamp can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and uh, suddenly it becomes a very wise investment. And I play someone who has a great deal of money, who knows something about stamps, and I happen to carry a gun. In this show. The story focuses on a young woman whose mother has recently died, uh-huh. who comes into possession of a stamp album, which has what really is portrayed as the holy grail of stamp collecting. Yes. These, these stamps from Mauritius. Uh-huh. And you, you want them badly. Yes. Um, but your character combines, you, you say that there's the, the criminal element, but it's very interesting because it's made very clear you are not someone to be messed with mm-hmm. but there's also a genuine passion yeah. for the stamp collecting it's not just about money for mm-hmm. this guy interestingly enough i think his is the purest passion in the play for for the stamps it's 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 it, there is a a purity about his almost lust for them but there's also a respect for that uh, uh, the ideal or the thing that it represents because in fact, if he really wanted them just simply to own them, he could simply take them. No one would deny him. He has the power, and he certainly has a, he's a dangerous man, but he refuses to do that. He rather pays the money that he negotiates, and it's considerable. It's almost $2 million in cash. And uh, he is an honorable man in that respect. Did the play evolve during the rehearsals? Because this is a new play. Sometimes there's an opportunity for for actors oh. to put their own stamp on on a role, and the oh, yeah. author responds. Tell tell me about the development. All I can all I can tell you is there's nothing like a new play. There's nothing like it. Just creating this thing, and then wondering if it works, and and and, and supplying this line and that line. And this and there are some lines that we all, each of us, contributed. And Teresa's very open to it. If it works, she puts it in. But did the character change at all over the course essentially, of Essentially, no. The, the characters didn't change. They were essentially what she wrote. It's pretty much... This is, this is all her imagination. So often with shows, they rehearse four weeks in the studio, and mm-hmm. when you get in front of an audience and you're talking about the response to the, to the actors, you find things, things that sometimes you think are funny that may not be or vice versa. Yeah. What what happened when you got out <laughs> of this apparently idyllic experience in the rehearsal hall and, and out in front of an audience? That's part of the the thrill of doing a new play. It's finding that out. It really is thrilling. It's, uh, it's a funny thing and word to use at my age after being here for so many years because it really is exciting. You just don't know. 
You, I, I'm really a funny man. I play these heavy bad guys, but I really am essentially, a, basically, a, a comedian, a comic. And uh, I know what's funny. But you don't really know until you put it out there. Or you don't know how funny it is. And, and there are some places in here where the, the laughs are just explosive. And they go on for a while. And other places where I was sure there were going to be, you know, wonderful hit laughs. And they didn't come. But uh, essentially, it's as funny as I thought. And more. It's very melodramatic. And there are places where they gasp. It's, it's, a, it's like a melodrama. It's great. And... Your character, again, you and I, have to I think that's really what the theater should be yeah. about, is that kind of involvement where people uh, are so carried away that they do explode like that. And people don't always know where you're going because at times your character is funny and we're mm. meant – and at other times we are meant to – absolutely believe that you are truly dangerous mm. and indeed you are threatening as um, as innocent and helpless a young woman as you could possibly think in, mm. in the character of Alison Pill. How do you balance the going back and forth between the comic and then making it so people believe you might truly go off? Well, I'm an actor. <laughs> That's what I do. It's the kind of personality I am, though. I'm I'm a mercurial personality, and it's the kind of part that I really respond to. That kind of explosive veering from one place to another. It's it's pretty thrilling. It's like the character Makusho, by the way. It really is that really dangerous, funny man. I I think a little more Tybalt than Makusho. It's interesting that you'd you'd bring up classical characters in relation to such a modern play. Do you do you often think about the the classical forebears of characters? Yeah, you find yourself doing it if the material will sustain it. If you try to bring too much of that kind of weight to material that won't won't sustain it, then it'll collapse and it doesn't work. Uh, you can't do this kind of thing with a soap opera, for example, which I've done, by the way. Well, you've done a lot of things in your career, uh, so we'll we'll use that comment to to segue. Mm. You were born in Pittsburgh but grew up in El Paso. Right. Um, tell me how you got from El Paso, mm. not a noted theater town, um, <laughs> no. into into the theater. Well, I think that the, 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 that thing about uh, – you, you did say El Paso. You didn't say Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh I, is a pretty good theater town. Yes, but, but yeah. you really grew up in El Paso. Oh, yeah, yeah. really. That's where you have to say I'm from because I was so small. But um, – I don't know how you explain something like my becoming part of the theater because my people are blue-collar working people, coal miners from Pennsylvania originally and steel workers. And, and oh, my father was a mechanic. My mother was a housewife. It, it, uh, it was nothing but uh, work. Um, I don't know how to explain that except that it seems like at the end of a long day there wasn't any time to do anything but have dinner, go to sleep, and get up the next morning and go to work. It was It's really it was seven days a week, and I was helping my father in the garage. And The point is that uh, literature was not part of my life, and, how, and let alone the theater. And how it happened was that uh, there was a teacher. I became kind of a hoodlum in high school, uh, part of a gang. Uh, it's what you did to stay together, to stay in one piece. And uh, it was the beginning of the big gangs. It was uh, probably the precursors of the Bloods and the Crips because it's a Mexican town, and all my friends were Mexican. I, I thought of myself as Mexican, really, because of my accent and because of my friends. And I still love Mexico. Anyway, the, the point is uh, 
we were part of a gang, and uh, I was in and out of trouble. But for some reason, some teacher in high school, a teacher, saw something in me. Because I love telling jokes, and I, I was always like messing up. And The point is, she saw something. I have no idea how or why, but she said, you must try this. And I listened to her. I really don't know what would have happened to me if it hadn't been for her. I I, I can't imagine I would have drifted into the theater. I, I really, I mean it. Hmm. And uh, I think it was uh, a mystical connection. I, I, it was the hand of God, if you were like, if you if you want to say it that way. I was very lucky. And and even in that environment, being a member of a gang, not having had the background, mm. you were, it, it bit you enough that you were oh. willing to shift into that world? Because I would think that's not exactly what the cool kids <laughs> were doing. No, I, I instantly broke off with everyone. I began really to work hmm. on, on, on on my accent because I began to listen to myself. And I realized she gave a, me a play, which I performed and won a contest. That's how I went to college, by the way. I won a scholarship. But it was the old lady shows her medals. And it's a, it's a Scottish accent. I mean, who, who knew about a Scottish accent? You know, not, That's the J.M. Barry play. That's correct? right. Yeah. That's, it's a pretty good play, by the way. Still it's works. a lovely play. It was done here about a couple of years ago. Franny Sternhagen. Yeah. At the Mint. Absolutely. Terrific. But, uh, yeah, Franny. But, um, boy, you really know your stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the uh, thing that was that... I began to study, and I began to get recordings, which I still have, old big 78 discs, listening to uh, Barrymore. And in in to the days Gilbert. when there were actually discs put out of plays, and you could just go and buy them and hear them. <clears throat> anyway, the, that's what I did, and I began to change my accent and listen to myself and, and read and read and play catch-up like when you talk about your accent, were, did you indeed have an accent? Oh. What, what, was it was it uh, a Latino-sounding accent? It wasn't really too far off from the one that I used in Scarface. Really? It was very thick, yeah. Uh-huh. I was one of the guys. I mean, that's, you know, you run with a bunch of people. You, you sound like them. Yeah. You, so you got the scholarship to college. You studied, 90 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a it's, lot of money at that well, time. Well, it was enough and, to go to school. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> studied theater in college. That's all I did. I think and, I failed every course except my theater courses. Huh. So <laughs> then you came to New York pretty then quickly after thereafter? Then after about a year that I, I decided I didn't want to go to school anymore, I, I wanted to try my hand. And I went to California, to L.A. Hmm. And uh, it was in the 60s then, early 60s. And so I began to just mess around. And that was a good place to mess around. And I did for a while. I met my wife. And we've been together ever since, about 47 years. Well, and uh, and then I just fooled around. Then I began to uh, I looked for – finally I said, I'm not going to fool around anymore. I'm going to either – I'm going to either pursue this diligently because it really is easy to have a good fun in the 60s in L.A., you know, <laughs> or anywhere, I guess, in the 60s. But anyhow, I said, okay, I'm 25 years old and I've been saying I'm an actor and I've been doing readings and plum, playing around. I'm going to either commit myself to it or not. And I and I did, and I got the first job that I really went out for to get. It was uh, Ray Bradbury's play. The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. That's right. And he's still around, by the way. Yeah. No, certainly, most people don't realize that Bradbury has written a lot of plays. Yeah. They think of him oh, as yeah. the short story writer. But I'm, I'm curious, this comes up every mm. so often when we talk to people on this program, that it's if, if the interest is theater, going to L.A. is almost counterintuitive. Mm. So... How easy was it for you to to pick up work, you know, at that time? Because uh, obviously the industry has always been geared more towards television and film out there. Yeah, I think what you you put your finger on. <laughs> I was just scared. The idea of coming to New York was out of the question. I was just terrified. I suppose 
Even when I got to L.A., I was afraid of that, that, that rejection thing until I committed myself. And then when I got the job in the theater, I um, began to realize that the actors out there didn't have much respect for themselves. They were, had more respect for working. But every time I met someone who was from New York, he was always introduced as the New York actor. And I thought, well, if I'm going to devote my life to this, I'm not going to be second best. I'm going to go to New York, and I'm going to be a New York actor. And as soon as the play closed, that's what my wife and I did. We came to New York, and I studied with Uta Hagen. And what kind of work did you get? Once you got here to New York, I was struck by an early uh, bio of you that I that I dug up where you were in the Fantastics fairly early in its yeah. run. I would gather it was the eighth year, actually. That, yeah, oh, yeah okay. considering it's it's uh, considering it's how many years it yeah. lasted, it would be early in the run. You know, it's still running now. It's with, it's back off Broadway. You know, who's it. playing the old actor, which is what I play, Tom Jones, who was a guest on this program, and we talked to him about he did that. the original old actor. Yeah. So, and he had done it in the original production. He's probably the only you, actor who ever had the opportunity to play the same role, you know, some 45 40. years <laughs> apart. As he said, he was miscast the first time, but it worked just fine for the revival. But what other what other kind of work were you doing in the in off-Broadway? Because it wasn't until about uh, 67, 68 that you actually had your first Broadway show. So so what what were those shows in the early years? Well, they weren't a, they weren't a lot. They were, I did a lot of children's theater. Hmm. I did a lot of uh, street theater. Political activism. Uh, it was a lot of political um, children's plays. Very interesting. I was working with uh, a man, Tony McGrath, for the Off Center Theater. But it was it was pickup work. But it was a it was a lot of work getting my chops together. But as far as off Broadway, that was the next step up for me. It was just finding whatever I could do and studying. Well, I noticed in the off Broadway work that you did several of Terrence McNally's plays when once they I were started, new. Once I started to work uh, off-Broadway, when I did uh, Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone? That's when I met Terrence and Bobby Drivers. And uh, Terrence just, he, he wrote for people like me. Hmm. And it seemed like, and I did every one of his plays, either as a production or as a reading for many, many years. It was a, it was a great break for me. Hmm. Your first Broadway show was The Man in the Glass Booth by the actor <laughs> Robert Shaw. And obviously you were yeah. you were obviously seen by a great man of the theater uh, putting you into that because the director was Harold Pinter. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that play and about being I'll directed be by Pinter? Oh, I'd be glad to. It was a, it was a, I was doing uh, something for uh, the new theater that it was called. And uh, they were producing The Man in the Glass Booth. And I, I, I don't know what I was doing for them. I can't remember. I think, anyway, it was a, it was a small play. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to audition for their production. It was a small part in, um, I think, one of 16 or 17 characters in this straight play. Couldn't possibly be done now. But uh, it was Harold Pinter. And I, I got all excited, of course. You know, he was really... Um, so current and so exciting and so new then. And when I met him, don't ask me why I said this to him, but I said, hello. He said, hello, I'm Harold Pinter. And I said, hi, hi, would you like to hear some Shakespeare? I don't know why I said that, except that he's British. I thought, well, what the hell? And it was the stupidest. You anyway, really could have just paused after yeah. giving your name and, and, and he more said, appropriate. He said, we're not doing Shakespeare. And, and I thought, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm fucked. And, 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 but anyway, I, I, I know. So I got up on stage and says, all right. Uh, I said, what would you like me to do? He said, I would like you to uh, pantomime measuring someone with a tape as though for clothing. 
and I, I did this pantomime, and there was the stage manager standing there, and I was measuring his waist and his, you know, his legs and arm, and he said, "Thank you very much." And I said, "Is is that it?" And he said, "I think we've seen what you can do." And I said, "This is loud now. Get ready." <laughs> I said, "I don't feel like I've done a goddamn thing." <laughs> and then I th- then I thought to myself, "I really did it. I blew it." And uh, I thought, and I almost cried. I got, you know, I went to see a friend of mine, and I started to cry, and said, "I could, I was stupid. I was stupid. I, I, I said this. I did this." And that afternoon, they called me and said, "He wants me to be in his play." <laughs> did you ever ask him whether it was ultimately the screaming or the measuring that got you the part? I never had the courage. <laughs> but I'll tell you this about him: about fifteen or twenty years later, they did a. There was a twentieth anniversary or twenty-fifth anniversary of The Caretaker, and I was in it, and he sent a note to me saying, I know you're going to be very good in this play. I mean, this is... I had a tiny, tiny part. Hmm. And then he came to see the production, to check it out in, in, in rehearsals. He's very caring, a wonderful man. And I began to babble to him and hold him. We were holding hands and talking, and he's a very warm, very generous man. And in the middle of all my blithering, and you can see I do blither, he stopped me and said, it's a great part, isn't it? I thought... Well, that's what a playwright wants to hear. He wants to hear a compliment, just like all of us. (laughs) I love him. Another Broadway show early in your career, Mm. and we've already mentioned Terrence McNally. You really had two of Terrence's plays, Bad Habits, Mm. moved from off-Broadway. Tell us first about Bad Habits, and then, of course, we have to talk about the Reds. Well, there's nothing to tell. It was just a great break, you know, having met him and every play he wrote, there was something in it for me, and I was always invited to be part of it. That's all. It was it was a great thing. And the Booth Theater was, the, I guess, the best theater on Broadway. We played it there. And then after that, it, of course, it was the Ritz. And the Ritz was a big thing for me. Well, let's talk a little about the Ritz. We're seeing a revival right now, mm. uh, the Roundabouts production, which is now playing. At the time of the original, certainly there had begun to be more explicitly gay-themed plays on Broadway. Uh-huh. It wasn't quite the taboo that it once was. How did that show play in 1975, 76, when it it first came out? It's a watershed. I mean, the idea that uh, I played, uh, but what what he was, it was a completely out and very fay, very gay, gay man. In other words, he was at home with himself, and he was, he is the sanest man on the stage, which was, I think, Terrence's idea to make this, uh, this outrageous gay man that and uh, the, 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 the epitome of sanity. Um, but uh, it was uh, a big gamble because no one would back it. Adela Holzer had real courage to believe in the play because it was something, a theme that no one would possibly deal with sex between men on a, on a very big scale at the bats. And, and there are certain jokes that wouldn't go over now. That was, this was pre-AIDS, by the way. And uh, it was a big gamble, and it was great to hear the laughs. It was great to hear that it was okay to do that. It was, as I say, it was a watershed. Have you had the opportunity to go and see the new revival of the show, and do you plan to if you haven't? I approached um, Joe, and I asked Terrence. I said, let me, let me make an appearance in a towel. Let me, I mean, there's so many actors on the stage. I mean, let me just walk on for the opening night or something, or one matinee or something, please. And uh, Joe looked into it. He said it was just, uh, the rules prevented it, prohibited it. 
So I absolutely intend to see it. I don't know how. We've got the same schedule. Sure, I can't wait to see it. I hear that uh, this guy, this wonderful actor who's playing my part. Brooks Ashmanskis. I hear he's just great. I, I, it's a great part. Well, it's, as somebody who's spent so much time doing... Oh, oh let, me, let, me, let, me, sure. let me say something quick before we leave it. I've played a lot of killers in, in, in uh, my life. I've killed a lot of people. My mother is Italian, and she really is very proud of herself and her heritage. And she's never complained that I play some, some very bad mafiosi sometimes. But when I played in the Ritz... When I would visit her in Texas, she would introduce me this way. This is my son. He has a wife and two kids. <laughs> so the killers were okay, but in that day and age, mom wasn't so sure otherwise. Well, let me ask you about something else you were doing around the same era. You talked about how you got into the business and things you, you have to sometimes do as an actor to make ends meet. Would this be around the era that you were in a, a rather um, iconic uh, series of television commercials? <laughs> we should say that the great classical actor, Murray Abraham, was the original bunch of grapes yeah. in the Fruit of the Loom commercials. <laughs> how, did, how did you balance that muddy job with, uh, with the kind of great theater work you were doing? Listen, I'll do it again if I had to. Absolutely. And it was fun. And it's, you know, it paid the rent. It was, it was a good time. But I don't know why people remember me as the grapes, because I wasn't. I was the leaf. Oh, my mistake. Everyone does it, so I let it go. <laughs> There's another thing people always say. You're a lost weight, they say. I don't know. I must be in people's memories a roly-poly. Anyway, uh, that was great. We had a good time. In those days, we did hundreds of commercials. They were mostly all the commercials in the, in the country, I'd say over 90%. Were cast and shot in New York or around New York because the agencies were all yeah. based here at the time. And you and I did a lot of commercials. Well, let's segue from hell away, ho hooray! <laughs> <laughs> let's segue from those commercials to the incredible list of classical roles you have played in your career. I, I should interrupt you. I should say that uh, I, I the commercials were great and, and, and really very lucky. But at one point, I I decided to quit doing them. I was becoming pretty facile about it. And I was, I thought, becoming branded in the business and uh, as not a, a serious actor. Hmm. And I thought I wasn't being considered for some of the parts that I would like to be considered for. So I, I decided to stop doing commercials. And whether or not that changed anyone else's perception of me, it changed my perception of me. And that was, I think, what I was driving for. Hmm. But at that point, then, did you have to do anything consciously to go out and prove yourself more as a classical actor to yeah. get people would people see you or was it literally no he's the, he's the leaf I we're not going to see him as as Iago the leaf or the coffee salesman or Listerine or whatever it was um, I just uh, I began to do readings and, and to show up at, at places that, that were having were, were casting uh, classical pieces I had to let people know that I was interested and I could do it with this incredible list of classical roles, I want to try a little something with you. I want to mention in sequence a bunch of the characters you played and ask you to simply almost free associate. What is it that you remember? And these are not going to be in the order that you played them. They're mm. just a variety of major roles. Got them all tense. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll start with, with Lear. Let's start with the big one. Uh, I, I loved it. I did it the way I wanted to do it, and it was a great success in Boston. And it was not received well in New York, except by a few critics. What was it you wanted 
to do with him? What? How did you see Lear? I saw him as uh, Andrew Carnegie. I saw him. There's a photograph of Andrew Carnegie uh, in most of the libraries that he financed. Uh, if you look for it, you'll find it. And there's a look in his eye at the end of his life that I think is in Lear, where he was a man, a ruthless killer of a man who would just stop at nothing. And at the end of his life, he began to realize that he had to do something about making amends. And I think that's why he built those libraries. Hmm. Okay, Iago in Othello. <laughs> fun. Nothing fun. But, Why fun? Nothing but fun because he's, uh, he's first of all, he's so upfront. He's so smart. He's so, he's paranoid, but he's, he's just so much hipper than everybody else. His, his language is so good. He was fun. A dangerous, fun man. A guy you want to hang out with. Hmm. Macbeth. That was the hardest part I've ever done. That was harder than Lear. Because? There's no rest. Lear is engineered for resting. It's really great that way. But uh, if you're going to do Macbeth, as I think it should be done, it should be without an intermission, and it should be like a rocket. Once you ignite that rocket, it just goes and goes until it crashes. And it's got to be that kind of relentless energy. Do you think Shakespeare knew that? Because, of course, Macbeth is the shortest of all the Shakespeare plays. Yes, it is. So with yeah. Lear, assuming an older actor, do you think he built in built in the rest time? And, and with Macbeth, he said, no, it's a younger guy. He I can wonder, do it. I wonder. Maybe. Hmm. I do know that um, I loved that, uh, that Macbeth. I, I, I think I would like to try one more. Hmm. Bottom in Midsummer Night's oh, Dream. Bottom is, the, is my favorite. My favorite. Uh, well, he was my favorite Shakespeare performance. Now it's, of course, it's... Uh, Shylock. Well, then tell us why Shylock. <clears throat> Shylock, of course, being <clears throat> the most the most recent of the major Shakespeare yeah. roles. I will tell you about Shylock. I would like to, before I leave uh, Bottom, I will tell you that uh, the Mechanicals have remained friends over the almost twenty years now. So who else? So was, that's was how, in, who, who else were were you the Mechanicals with? It's uh, Richard Reilly, who is now in California. Tim Perez, who is in Vancouver. Joe Zaloom, Steve Hoffendahl, and um, Peter Appel. So it was a new gang for you. I can't tell you. It's really great to know that it meant that production meant as much to them as it did to me. Hmm. Anyway, uh, that's a very rare thing, too, by the way. Um, the other thing is, we all went to Mexico, by the way, to, to, for, the, for the wedding of one of the guys once about five years ago. Um, but uh, the thing that makes um, Shylock, the, I think, my greatest performance, is uh, not just the way I feel about it. It was, it was a, a wonderful response from, from the audience. But also, we took it to Stratford-on-Avon to be part of the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company's complete works. They did all of Shakespeare in one year. I mean, everything, the sonnets, the poetry, everything in one year. And we were invited to do Merchant of Venice. And uh, The Swan is the best theater I've ever played. And uh, when, when we, as you can imagine, we were a little bit nervous. We were a couple of blocks from where Shakespeare was born and about six blocks from where he was buried. And uh, we did our performance, and they cheered. They stood up, and they cheered and shouted. Hmm. These British 
proper British people, these conservative. And we thought, well, that's, you know, the first night. Who knows? And they did it the second night. And then we knew we had something. And I'm curious. Every the performance sh- was Seeing that the show here in New York, you were in a very intimate space. Theater uh-huh. for a New Audience used the Duke Theater on 42nd Street, which is a couple of hundred people. What was the scale that you were doing it at over there? Was it a comparably sized house, or did the show have to get bigger? It was about two and a half times as big as that one. But it was exactly the the, the, the swan. It was uh, built on the exact frame, I think, that uh, Shakespeare's theater was built on. Hmm. You did... Merchant of Venice in repertory, which we see so rarely, with The Jew of Malta, not a play. We you see don't it see it. Often. It's never been done in this country. So what was the experience of doing those two roles, <laughs> which in many people, certainly um, there, there are a number of people in the Jewish community who would say neither of those shows should ever be done again. Yeah. So, so how, did, how did that work? James Shapiro has written some really good books about the... Uh, Jewish experience in the theater, and uh, he he was the advisor for our show. He's with Columbia, and um, he's written something called Shakespeare and the Jews. But uh, he uh, helped prepare the Jewish community for it. Hmm. We sent out messages. We talked about it. We uh, explained why it was being done in terms of the other. Uh, it's not just anti-Semitic. It's anti-other, anti-different. And it was all, and I did a lot of, I went to the YMHA, and we had a, a forum there, we had a private, a smaller forum than that. We did a lot of preparation. And um, considering what happened when Joe Papp did this play some years ago, there was a real outcry. I mean, it was really something. We didn't, we prepared very well, and it was very well received. There is a false assumption by many, given your name, that you are, in fact, Jewish. Hmm. You are not. No. Did that play in at all in people's responses as to were, that you were not a Jewish man playing these, some some would say, are really awful Jewish characters? How did you, again, how did you deal with, with the cultural aspects of that? Well, considering I think that more than 50% of the parts I've ever played are Jewish, I think I know more about, about Jews than Jews do, I think, about <laughs> the average Jew anyway. Um, uh, the uh, I did the golem as you may know, uh, and uh, well, there the, have been a number: Tybalion and her demon, yeah, the golem, uh, even Man in the Glass Booth has yes, Jewish themes. Yes, I yes. mean, it's really remarkable how many how uh, many those come along in your career. I'm, my father's from Syria, and Syrians are not Arabs; they're Semitics, they're Semites. So I might be Jewish, actually, hmm. or or at least we're all one bunch of cousins. Ishmael, isn't it? Ishmael, you got me there. Yeah, he's. Uh, he was uh, the son of Abraham, mm-hmm. and he they started the uh, the Arab tribes. But anyway, um, uh, I am on the uh, first page of the Jewish calendar from the YMHA. My picture is <laughs> as a famous Jew. I have it. Here. I think there's only one thing we Actually. can say to you, Mazel Tov. <laughs> Happy New Year. Let me ask you about a couple of other classical roles, Cyrano. Oh. Well, it's the greatest romantic play ever written. Where did, where did you do Cyrano? I did it in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was... Uh, there. There is language. There is something. Something to sink your teeth into. That was just a romantic, I don't know, feast. Mm-hmm. I still can't think of it without smiling. 
this was it was a wonderful time. As you can see, I really like my work. Yes, that's that seems clear. <laughs> a, a number, many of these classical roles that we're mentioning, though, you had the opportunity to do under the auspices of the Public Theater, the New mm. York Shakespeare Festival. And I'm wondering, because over a period of time you got to do so many roles, how did that relationship develop? Was that directly with Joe Papp? It was really astounding because uh, I auditioned for them for almost seven years before they hired me. I auditioned and auditioned, and they kept refusing. And when I finally started to work, uh, I never stopped. I did a lot of readings and a lot of plays. He was very good to me. But was it a case of he decided to do the shows and called you, or are you still going in and auditioning to get these? Because over the years, there were so many. Sometimes I'd be invited, Mm -hmm. and sometimes I'd have to audition. But after a while, it was just by invitation. Mm -hmm. He was a... a, Good guy. When we did experimental pieces, for example, I did a lot of experimental work down there, and the critics were vicious. He would call them and lay them out. He was really very protective of his people. Hmm. Another major production that many of us have heard about, but given the demand, did not get to see, was The Waiting for Godot Uh, at Lincoln Center. Robin Williams, Steve Martin, (coughs) you... And Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin. Can you talk a little about that production, which was certainly... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Lucas oh. Haas. Lucas Haas played the oh, boy. Oh, was the young man. Yeah. Didn't, didn't know that. Yeah. But can you talk about that? Because it was, for a brief moment, Samuel Beckett was the hottest ticket in New York. <laughs> He's not always known for box office. But what was what was the production like first, and then the experience of being in that, that, that yeah. white-hot center of attention? For that yeah. kind of show, it was it was sensational. That met for sure what it was was sensational. It was disappointing that we never filmed it because so many people wanted to see it, and I loved the idea of an American take on this thing. It took place in the uh, desert surrounding Las Vegas. That was uh, that was the idea, but uh, I just yeah. The the idea that so many people wanted to see this production and and we didn't film it still bothers me, mm-hmm. because it's gone. You know, it's just finished. But uh, I was I was in very good company. Those guys were terrific. My wife saw it twelve times. She she was really carried away with Steve's final monologue. I was good in it, but I certainly wasn't alone. It was great because I think it was historic, and at the same time, it's gone. I mean, it's just simply gone. That's mm-hmm. too bad. Playing Beckett. I mean, obviously, all great actors, but the the challenge of of that work. I mean, was it is it a more difficult play to do than others, or or as in certainly some of he suggested, is it meant to be a comedy, and you should just get out there and play it? Yeah, I think I think that it's just a matter of um, performing it, doing it. Suddenly, it's very intimidating at first because of the reputation that precedes it. It's like, it's like I suppose, much the way uh, American actors perceive Shakespeare. It's not intimidating. It's fabulous. That guy writes for actors. Pinter's the same way. You really don't know it until you do it, how much he likes actors and how much he's thinking about actors. And not until you actually mouth those words. It's an odd thing to say. You know, you, you don't get it simply from reading the script. Maybe you do, but generally you don't. And then once you get into it, you can't wait to do it again and again. Because Pinter really, and, and Beckett, write for actors. As I think Mamet does. 
You mentioned Mamet. We haven't brought up that you were in, I believe, was it the original off-Broadway production of Sexual Perversity in yeah, Chicago? down at the Cherry Lane, right. It was you and Peter Riegert? Uh-huh. And Jane Addison, the writer-director. And, of course, that was before people really knew who David Mamet was. Mm, how, did, how did that show come off in, oh, in that production? It was, it was a thrill. It was, it was, you know, the Cherry Lane at that time was about 99 seats. It's quite a bit nicer now. But uh, a beautiful theater down there. Uh, but uh, we lasted for a good, I don't know, eight, nine months, ten months, and then we went out and we took it to Washington. But it was it was wonderful. It was exhilarating. No one writes like Mamet. I mean, in, in terms of the American voice, that energy. I was in heaven. It took me a while to get you know the the pace, which is really high powered and very very fast, to make it really work. And it was thrilling. It was exhilarating. And this kid is writing this stuff. It was fantastic. Really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some of the box office women were funny because they'd answer the phone this way. Um, sexual perversity in Chicago, Cherry Lane. And it sounded like it was a woman named Cherry Lane working in this sleazy place called... Se- <laughs> anyway. It was, it was a phone sex operation <laughs> run by David Mamet in the mid-70s. Interesting to know about. And I've done a couple of his plays since then. It's, he's, he really writes for the American voice. That's why I'm surprised that it's always it's a success in England. Hmm. I can't imagine the Brits can do it, but uh, shame on me. We're talking about all of this stage work, and, of course, that's the focus of our program. But we, I certainly need to ask you about how did you, as this solid, respected, working stage actor who was doing film work, you've done things like you've done a number of films, certainly some iconic New York films, but how did you end up landing the plum role of Salieri in, Mons- in, in Amadeus? It's a, it's a mystery. I really don't know. I can tell you that uh, there was a thing at the time happening in, in New York where uh, actors were uh, expected to, uh, to engage in group activities, group uh, improvisations for parts, whether it was for commercials, in which they usually helped write the damn things, uh, which we put a stop to finally through the unions. But also it was happening with groups in, in movies. And I was asked, along with a bunch of other actors, to come to Milos's and wherever the place was. And, Milos Foreman who directed Milos the film. And, yeah, and, and, and improvise. And I said, at this point in my life, that point, I said, there's only one part I want in that, and I ain't going to get it. I know that. It's going to. It's written by a, a Brit for Brit, Brit, and Brits have done it right, both in England and here. Paul Schofield in England originally, and then Ian and McKellen my friend, over Ian here. McKellen here. But and I said I'm not going to work my ass off to do a, a little supporting role for some British actor. I, I admire them, I like them, I respect them, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I want to make a name. I want to make a you know a stand. And then I got another call again from Milos uh, saying, "Would you like to come?" And I said to my agent, "I don't want to do that. I'm telling you, I'm not." And the third time he called was to talk to talk about that part about about the Salieri, and I said, "Well, hell, of course I'm going to talk. It ain't going to happen. But you know, if I'm going to see him and tape it, I'll get a cop." What we used to do then it was a different world. We would bring in tapes, and when they when they did uh, an audition on tape, would ask for a copy of it, and they were very generous about making copies for us. Because I had this, I wanted to see what I looked like. And that's how I learned to act on film, by the way, was through commercials and watching myself on these audition tapes. And I said, sure, I'll do it so I can have a copy of the tape. And I went and I met him and 
there was an actress there I happened to have worked with in, in, in some Chekhov, Kathy Dowling, in his apartment. We talked. We discussed the part. I got the script, and I took off. And the next, I guess, a couple of days later at the studio, there was someone with a wig for me and a costume, my whole thing. And um, I was going to audition this time with a different actress. And she also was someone I had worked with. A wonderful actress in uh, I met in Landscape of the Body, John Guare's terrific play. So I, it, it seemed to me that everything was pointing in the right direction, but I still knew it wasn't going to happen. I knew who was auditioning for these parts. I knew who was coming to town with their own makeup people in order to get the part. I'm very, very famous box office. We're talking 20 or $30 million box office guarantees. So I said, it's nonsense. It's not going to happen. And when they called me, I really got scared. Hmm. I said, I've been, I've been complaining about British, 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 blah, blah, blah. We can be as good as the British. I said, no, I have to, no, I got to, by God, prove it. I really got scared. Hmm. <laughs> and did he, did, did Foreman ever say to you why you, what he specifically, that you had for that part? Hmm. Just. He just he'd latched on and he was going to have you yeah. over all of the yeah and uh, me and Tom I mean and these two unknown people basically unknown and uh, fortunately the producer was had enough uh, respect for me to say we'll do it we'll we'll take the gamble and it worked out nicely for all concerned well interestingly enough if the reviews when the movie first came out in this country if that had been a stage production the reviews probably would have closed us, us. The complaints were that the British could have done it better until we became very famous, until we became very successful, and the reviews from Europe came in in our favor. Then we were invited on to, to the talk shows by the same people who had damned us. It was really funny. Huh. Another <laughs> aspect of your career that we, we've only touched on, we mentioned that early on you did the Fantastics. Mm. And a couple of times... You have done musicals. It doesn't seem to come yeah. a lot, but you did The Christmas Carol at Madison Square Garden one year, mm-hmm. and and you did the musical of Triumph of Love. Yeah. Um, I would like you... to admonish uh, any actor who, who is going to do a musical who isn't really comfortable with doing it. He's got to or she's got to understand that they've got to play to their strength. And my strength, I should have acted more in the music rather than tried so hard to sing it. Because in Triumph of Love, that musical... It didn't fail because of me, but I didn't help it too much. I really got the technique for doing it toward the end of the run. It was one of those things. But uh, the point is that production deserved better than it got. It was it's a wonderful piece of work. It's a, it's a great play, by the way, Marivaux. But the, the other thing I did, I think that the role that uh, Dickens has written for uh, Christmas Carol is one of the great roles ever. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful piece of work I mean it's a winner and uh, uh, I played it as a younger man I didn't go for the white hair I thought I'd try something different that was a big mistake don't mess with something when it works the thing about the old old man is that he can still be redeemed even after a whole lifetime of being this nasty crotchety old guy and also when he gets violent and angry with people you kind of put up with it because he's a kind of an old crotchety guy. Well, I made the mistake of saying I'm going to try something different. But you take your shot. Hmm. 
interested in doing musicals. Had you? Oh, avoided by the way, let me tell you, yeah. that was a great show. It's a shame it's not happening anymore. That was a great show. Mm-hmm. Had you avoided musicals because they've come up so few times in your career, mm. or is it just people don't think of you for it and you'd be perfectly happy to to see about I it? I think it's that. I think that I have to convince anyone who's doing a musical that I can do it because I do sing. And I just have to go out and let them know. I've got to put myself on the line again because I really love it. I think it's where the, the theater is going and has gone. And it's my kind of acting. It's big and it's fraud and it's a lot of fun. Hmm. Every time I see a bio on you or an article about you, it always talks about the fact that you have taught for many years at Brooklyn College. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about how you came to teach and and what you get out of that. When I did the old lady shows her medals uh, with uh, Geraldine, dear, dear Geraldine Page, she was teaching at the time. She said was a devoted and a very good teacher. She she asked me once, please, uh, once we met. I've got a picture to do. Why don't you teach for me? And so, where are you? Where are you in your career at this point? Uh, I had just won an Academy Award. Okay, so and I I, I had applied anyway. I was doing the rag picker in uh, Mad Woman. Was Mad Woman. So that was. I hope you you didn't see her, did you? I'm afraid was, I did. That was a performance. Hmm. We were really good together. Anyway, um, so I started to teach, and because we both studied with Uda, so it was the same basic technique. I wasn't the teacher; she was. But uh, I learned, and uh, I, I found out that I liked it, and I had a talent for it. So I, uh, I, Brooklyn College got in touch with me and said, would you be interested? Because I was, I was kind of identified with being from Brooklyn. I was living across the street from the museum, Bed-Stuy. And um, it's cheap, you know, seven rooms, $250 a month in those days. Anyway, uh, the point is uh, they were very good to me, and I learned a lot. When you teach... What you're forced to do is codify your own knowledge. You begin to take what you think you know for granted. But these students start asking questions, and you've got to start analyzing what you do. It really was was a selfish thing. I was learning a great deal from them. And uh, at one point, I had to finally quit because I traveled so much. Even though I had a contract which allowed me to teach when I was around, I thought, this isn't right. So I finally said no, and I'll just come in once in a while when I can. But I think everyone who... I think it's everyone's obligation to teach if they possibly can. They should learn something about teaching, the great ones in our business, because I I owe so much to my teacher in high school, for one thing. That's why I do it. But also, we've really got to let these people understand that famous people, great artists, are only people, and what they've achieved is achievable by anyone, who, almost anyone who has the talent and the drive. There's an expression in Russian, by the way, uh, talent and a whip. I have both. Hmm. Talent is cheap, but you better have that whip. Do you think anyone who has achieved your success is able to teach? Are some people... Mm-hmm. No, no, but I think people... I'm sorry to interrupt no, you. No, it's okay. I don't know. I, I just think people should give it a shot. Hmm. I think service is a, an a, essential element in our lives that is is being ignored by too many people. I mean service of some kind to this society. Something. Give it back. What Can you tell us a little of what you think you learned? You said you c- were codifying what yeah. you'd been doing. Did it, did it come down into, into an actual code? Are there, are there truisms that, 
Murray Abraham can now <sighs> say to people? Gosh, I wish I could. I, that's interesting. You should make it. You see, now I have to think about that. But but if an actor asks you, a student says, how do you deal with a director who you don't understand? And I thought, well, how do I do it? I said, you know, there are different methods. I mean, different things you can do. You can get very angry, that, and that accomplishes absolutely nothing. Or you can nod your head and agree with the director and then do it the way you want and still try to please him at the same time. Make him or her believe that what they have said to you makes sense and still go ahead and do what you want to do. Mollified a little bit. Don't give up what you know, what you absolute the reason that you are the actor that you are. Don't just give it all over to try to please a director. That's a very important thing to find out. For all of the roles that you've gotten to play, mm. are there any that got away from you that you would have liked to have played and, and don't don't think you can anymore? I, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to be I'll be 68 th- this month in a couple of weeks, and I still can't imagine that I'm almost 70 years old. Like I, I still think of myself as being able to play any of the roles I've done. I mean, that's absurd. I said I would like to do Macbeth again. That would practically kill me. It almost killed me before. But uh, uh, I, I don't think so. There are some roles over the past 20 years, since I won the Academy Award, that I refuse to do, that now I know I made a mistake. I'm not going to go into what they were. It, they, they were really very important supporting roles in very big movies. And I thought, well, I'm not a supporting actor. I'm, I'm a leading actor. I, I won an Academy Award. I must be great. You see, that was bullshit. <laughs> I know that now. I should really write a book about what you should do when you win an Academy Award and what you should not do. <laughs> Mauritius is running through the end of November. Any immediate plans after that? Yes, I think I'm going to be doing Ethan Cohn's uh, couple of one-act plays. He's doing some what we call vaudevilles over at uh, the Atlantic. and they're, I've read them in the, uh, uh, publicly and they're fun. They're just fun pieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after that, I think I'll be doing the Albi. Tell us, I, I recalled the Albi even as I asked the question, but but yeah. what, those are going to be at the Cherry Lane? At the Cherry Lane. I recall, which, which ones are you doing? We're doing the Sandbox mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the, the uh, American Dream, which is what the, the Sandbox led into. But um, uh, I think also what I'm working on now, which is, which is being written for me, is a, a new film version of The Old Man and the Sea. Hmm. Robert Helmy and his son, Robert Helmy Jr., are producing it for me, and... Uh, it's being written as we speak, and we're going to do it off the coast of Puerto Rico. We tried to do it in Cuba, but it's really a, it's really hard. It's really a problem. Hmm. State Department stuff. Well, we will look forward to all of that. But again, in the meantime, you are playing through the end of November at the Manhattan Theater Club, the Biltmore Theater, in Teresa Rebeck's Mauritius. Murray Abraham, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks a lot. For my partner, John Von Susten, I'm Howard Sherman at the American Theater Wing, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for being with us. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.